0: Okay, hey, the Lord be with you. We'll get there, won't we? The Lord be with you. Maybe one more time for good measure, just to see if 11 a.m. are you present, the Lord be with you. There you are. It is good to see you this morning, if this is your first time with us. uh, My name is Andrew, I'm the lead pastor here, delighted to have you in our house. Uh, Are you enjoying the weather this weekend? Oh, thanks be to God forever and ever. I was up in uh, Holland, Michigan this past week uh, working on my doctorate up there. And you guys, do we have any Michigan people? In the, you guys are from Michigan. The green. It's incredible. And then the tulips in Holland were just everywhere. And it made me so happy because green and living things make me so Happy, And then uh, it just made me so desperate that the green and living things would come here to Colorado. And I'm here to say to you, I've lived here for, when did we move here, 2009? 14 years. And I'm here to say to you, if you're kind of new to Colorado, the green is coming. It'll be right at the end of June for about one week. (laughs) And then it will all die again. But it's going to be a great week. Uh, so it's so good to be with you. It's so great to be in the house of the Lord this morning. One thing I need to pass on, a little information announcement uh, for you. We, a couple times a year, we do a little thing around New Life East called family meeting, which is a time for us to be together and enjoy fellowship with one another. A very biblical idea. And we look back over the past season and we celebrate some things together. And then we also spend some time talking about what the Lord is laying on our hearts as a staff and how we're going to be leading into the coming season. And it's just such a wonderful, wonderful time. And guess what? We're going to have one next Sunday. It's so great. And so you say, when is it going to be? It's going to be at 5 o'clock. Everybody say 5 o'clock. It's going to be right here in the gymnasium. Everybody say right here in the gymnasium. And we're going to be serving pizza and salad. Everybody say pizza and salad. And this is a change from the past because we used to just do pizza, but uh, that's just not very adult, is it? Eat green things. Keep fiber in your diet, right? We're trying to make good adult decisions. So 5 to 7 p.m. right in here, we're going to make adult decisions. We will not have any children's ministry, so uh, bring your kids and have them be with you or find a babysitter or leave them at home with a cell phone. I don't know what you want to do. But however you want to negotiate that, that's your business, not ours. But we'll see you here at 5 o'clock, and it'll go to 7 o'clock. It's also a nice time, by the way, uh, to ask questions of us. So if you have things where you're like, what about that? That's a good time to do that. So even if—I'll just say this one last thing. Even if uh, you're, like, new to the community and kind of checking it out, and I'm not sure if I'm part of the family yet, this is a great opportunity for you to come and see what the family is all about. And I have really good news. I need to confirm this again, Pastor Colin. Pastor Colin. There's no registration, right? What if 300 people show up? Are we going to have enough pizza? Do you know what we'll do? We'll do a pizza multiplying miracle. Jesus did it, it and he said, the works that I do, greater shall you do. So Colin is going to hold up the pizza and bless it and break it, and we'll just trust that it gets exactly where it needs to go, the book of First John. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to First John chapter 2. Two weeks ago, we opened a little series here. John uh, was the beloved disciple of the Gospels. And you might remember that there were these kind of large, burly, feisty men among the disciples. Guys like Peter and James and John were called like the sons of thunder, you know. And then there were some wily types, Judas and what have you. And um, yeah, but... John was a young man when he joined the ranks of the disciples. He was a young guy, like a teenager, probably. And he was the oldest surviving apostle when he wrote this. So John had this incredibly intimate relationship with Jesus, the beloved disciple. He was one that leaned back on the chest of Jesus at the Last Supper. He had this intimate relationship with Jesus, which then for him became kind of the theme of his life that he extrapolated into his pastoral ministry. And when you read his letters, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, these letters just drip with the godly affection of one who knows the Lord. And so he opens his text, First John chapter 1, by laying kind of a, uh, this is what I argued a couple weeks ago, that I think what he's doing is he's giving us a bit of like a Christian vision of reality in a nutshell in chapter 1. So he talks about how our God is the God of life. And that life is made manifest in the Son. And so, our God is the God that creates this world and makes it to be an abundant place, and then sends His Son not to take us out of this life, but to reconnect us with this life the way that God would intend. That's why Jesus says in John ten ten, "The thief comes to steal and and destroy, but I have come that they would have and have it how uh, to to the absolute full, more abundantly. That's what Jesus has come to do. So God is the Lord of life. He's also the Lord of fellowship. So big theme of chapter one is that when God creates us, he makes us for fellowship with him. And he also makes us for fellowship with one another. And when you survey the biblical literature, you actually can't pull those things apart. The deeper we go into fellowship with God, the deeper we'll go into fellowship with other people. And the deeper we go into fellowship with other people, if those are godly relationships, the deeper what what we'll find is that we're bumping into the face of God. And so it's life and it's fellowship. That's a Christian vision of reality. But then John also, we'll remember this, he mentioned sin nine times in five verses in chapter one. And sin is like the great disruption to this fellowship of life that God creates. And so that has to be overcome somehow. And one of the ways that it's overcome in our experience is that we confess our sins. We own our stuff. And that's a great way to start putting the pieces back together again. But we also learned that there are some kinds of disruptions in our world that cannot be overcome just by human repentance. It takes an act of God. And so what happens is that in the person of the Son, all of the disruption brought about by sin falls upon Jesus in the cross. And in the resurrection, he emerges again as the first fruits of the new creation, a world put back together again as God intends. Which is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that if anybody is in Christ, what happens? It's new creation. He is the new creation. He's the place where all of the disruptions of sin have been overcome. That's John's vision of reality. Pastor Rory last week preached a wonderful message out of the earlier part of 1 John chapter 2, talking about how John says whoever claims to live in Jesus must walk as Jesus did. And that may sound high and lofty and beyond our reach, but via the practice of spiritual disciplines, we can actually become the kinds of people who do what Jesus intends. So that's all very good and wonderful, and we got a little Christianity 101 here. And so this morning, I'm going to talk to you Uh, about the Antichrist. Yeah? Are you up for it? Should we do it? It wasn't my choice. It was in there. It was in the Bible. We have to read the Bible. And I know that some of you actually are sitting here this morning and you're thinking, finally, Pastor. I've been waiting for you to talk about the Antichrist this whole time. I was this close to leaving. If He doesn't talk about the Antichrist in the next 3 weeks I'm out of here. Well, eat your heart out. Here we go. First John chapter 2. This is this Sunday's for you. Dear children, John writes, this is the last hour and as you've heard that the antichrist is coming. Even now many antichrists have come. Okay, now that's a fun one. You thought that there was one antichrist at the end of all things, and John thinks that there's lots of antichrists all over the place. So you can just take that and you can put that in your little end times pipe and you can smoke that one for a while. That's kind of interesting. It's like, I thought this was somebody that was going to be working for the U.S. government or the United Nations or something. And John's like, well, they went out from us, John says, but they didn't really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going out showed that none of them belonged to us. But you, he says, have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. And I'm not writing to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. And who's the liar? John says, it's whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the what? Well, there's like just gajillions of antichrists ever. This is like getting more bizarre by the second. Such a person is the antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father, but whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord and all God's people said. Let's pray. Jesus, we look to you. We love you, we believe in you, we trust you, and we're eager to have you be our present teacher this morning. Thank you for these words that have been inspired by the Holy Spirit. Thank you that these words are still being spoken to us by the Holy Spirit, and somehow you're drawing us into the life of your Father by them. So we ask that you be with us as our teacher this morning, our rabbi, our counselor, our helper. We thank God for Jesus We pray that you'd open up these texts to us, help us understand who we are, what we've been called to in our place in God's good world. Granted, we pray, we say, May the words of the preacher's mouth and the meditation of the hearer's hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, Amen. What is it about Jesus? What is it about Jesus? What I love about Jesus is how magnetic of a personality he is. I love how when you look at the gospel records, what you see is people flocking to Jesus from the four corners of Jerusalem and Galilee and Palestine. They just like can't get enough of Jesus. And when I say that people flock to Jesus, I don't just meet crowds by like the dozens or the hundreds, but... There are times in the Gospels that the Gospel writers will say that there were 5,000 men that were with Jesus, not including women and children. And so we're talking about regularly with Jesus, crowds of 25,000 people, 30,000 people, and they can't get enough of him. And like, what is it that they're after with Jesus? And I think the Gospel records actually show us what they're after with him. One of the places in the Gospels, in the book of Luke, for instance, Luke says that power was coming out from Jesus and was healing them all. That somehow the very life of God was radiant in this man so that the crowds were pressing around him trying to find healing from the maladies of their bodies. Something about that, I think it was his presence. I also think that it was something about his words, that the words had so much weight and authority. You'll remember, for instance, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, which we just got done preaching When he finished teaching, the scripture says, the crowds marveled at his words because he taught them as one having authority. That there was something about his words that had weight. And he could say, hey, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago. He's quoting Moses. It's like no greater authority in Israel than Moses. He says, but I'm saying to you right now. And they could feel the weight of that. And I think that that's true even now. I think that so much of what is magnetic about Jesus is that we sense that there's this life coming off of him that we want to participate in, and we sense that his words have a kind of gravity to them. He's magnetic in that way, but he's also, I think, deeply polarizing. Jesus is not an uncontroversial figure. Even in his life, he wasn't that way. Yes, he had the crowds pressing around him in the early part of his ministry, but as the ministry goes on, The crowds start departing and leaving. At one point in his ministry, he gives that teaching in John chapter 6 on the bread of life. You remember it? Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you don't have any life in you. And everybody that John says that at that point, lots of folks turned back and they no longer followed him. And he looks at the disciples and he says, what about you guys? You all want to leave too? And Peter says, Lord, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you're the Holy One of God. The crowds contract towards the end of the ministry of Jesus until finally he's slung up on a cross. And even in our own day, Jesus is that way, isn't he? That the magnetism of Jesus, the weightiness of Jesus, and yet there are some rooms where when you bring up the name of Jesus, it's not going to be received very well. And we slung him up on a cross in 33 AD and we still keep slinging him up on a cross because we don't know what to do with this guy. And that is the question that the New Testament consistently poses to us is what do we do with this guy? Who really are we dealing with when we're dealing with Jesus of Nazareth? That's why he's so magnetic. That's why he's so polarizing, because we sense that there's something more going on with him than just a regular human being, and we don't know exactly how to articulate that. And Jesus was not that dodgy about it in his ministry. He was dodgy about a lot of things, but he wasn't dodgy about this. And John who wrote the epistle that we're preaching out of over the next few weeks. And his gospel records this beautiful moment between Jesus and his disciples. He's getting ready to leave. Crucifixion is coming up. And he's teaching them about how in the Father's house there's many rooms and I'm preparing a place and all of that. And then he says, you know the way to the place where I am going. We pick up the action in verse 5. Thomas says to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way. And the truth and the life. And nobody comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you'll know my Father as well. From now on you do know him and you have seen him. And Philip is like, enough with the riddles. <laughs> he says, Lord, just show us the Father. Just show us God, Jesus. And that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been you among you such a long time. Anyone who has seen me has seen who. Irenaeus in the second century was a theologian who actually happened to be a disciple of John's. And Irenaeus had this great statement. He said that the visible of the son or of the father is the son and the invisible of the son is the father the invisible God whom no one has seen or can see, somehow when he makes himself visible, do you know what he looks like? Jesus the Lord. Wolfhard Ponenberg, one of the great theologians of the last century, said this, that as this man, Jesus is God. That when we encounter, that's the whole surprise and delight of the gospel records, that somehow, some way, God found his way into a human body. And more than just like we talk about all the time, we say, well, God, you know, in him, we live and move and have our being and God is in me and God is in you and all of that. And all of that is true. But with Jesus, the claim is beyond just the inness of God in him. In Jesus, the claim is that it's the asness of God in him. That that man that walked the dusty roads of Palestine is nothing other than God. And the New Testament writers never stopped being fascinated by this. It's all of the energy of the New Testament. Think about Paul. Colossians chapter 1, one of the great passages of the New Testament, if you don't have it committed to memory, you ought to. Paul writes, that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, Paul says, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all the dwell where? All the fullness of the God had dwell in him. And so through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth, the things in heaven, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Paul says if you want to know what God looks like, you look at the Son. If you want to know where the fullness of the deity resides, you look at the sun. Somehow it's in Him. The writer of Hebrews puts it so beautifully when he says that in the past, another passage to commit to memory, in the past God spoke to our forefathers at many times and in various ways, but in these last days He has spoken to us by who? The Son. The Son is the radiance of the glory of God. Like if God is light, Jesus is the bright, If God is water, Jesus is the wet. His son is the radiance of the glory of God. And the exact, everybody say exact. exact. Exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God. We could say it this way, that Jesus Christ is God without remainder. That when you encounter him, you're encountering all that God is and ever will be in a human body. John puts it so beautifully. Again, the same one that wrote this epistle when he says that no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Somehow that abyss of invisibility of God has been bridged. In the Son of God Himself, which is why John is so fanatical in this passage that we read, that we get the identity of Jesus right. He says that anybody that denies that Jesus is the Christ, what is that person? Literally, the Antichrist. That person is resisting the way in which God is communicating himself to us, resisting the way in which God is reconciling us to himself, resisting the way in which God has made himself available to us. And if you resist that, there's literally nothing else, which is why John says in 1 John 5, he says, And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And where's the life located? This is the life. It's this person, it's this man, and whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God, you just don't have life. There is no other life for God available to us than in this person, Jesus Christ. And what astonishes me as I read the records of people who have encountered Jesus, how consistently the experiences resonate across the ages. I think about one of my favorite novelists, Dostoevsky, Russian novelist, grew up an atheist in Atheist Russia, in the 19th century and was involved in all kinds of political and social conspiracies and blah, blah, blah. Gets thrown into prison in the middle part of the 19th century. And here is this atheist young man with his world crumbling around him wondering what is it all for? What's the point of life? And somebody gave him a copy of the New Testament that had the Psalms in it. And so he starts reading through the experience of the psalmist, all of those places when the psalmist had the bottom fall out of life. And he starts going, these people understand my experience they know what it's like to be hemmed in and trapped. They know what it's like to—they know what it's like to have the bottom fall out. And he feels himself being drawn into the biblical witness by the psalmist. And then he starts reading the New Testament. And as he scours the pages of the New Testament and encounters this person, Jesus, he would say later in his life, he said, "I, I was drawn by the radiant personality of Jesus." that there was just something about this man that I couldn't shake. And he read the New Testament over and over and over and over again. And finally, somehow, some way, by the witness of this man, Jesus, who is God, he was drawn, he was converted in a prison cell because he had a copy of the New Testament. And he went on later in his life to say that if it could, like this was how important Jesus was to him. He said, if it could be shown to me that Christ was outside of the truth, I would prefer to remain with Christ than with the truth. Isn't that your experience too? That somewhere along the line, you were captivated by this person, Jesus, and it drew you into this experience. It drew you into this encounter with him, and it's changed everything. So I want to say to you this morning that if God is what you're looking for, If God is what you're in the hunt for, and it doesn't matter if you're outside of faith or inside of faith, the deepest hunger of our life is for God. If God is what you're in for, then look no further than the man, Jesus Christ. He's the one in whom the fullness of the Godhead rests. What does that mean for us? Well, I think that really what the whole Christian journey is, is meditating on these things and trying to figure out how to calibrate ourselves to the reality of Jesus. But I want to give you three things that stood out to me, stand out to me in this moment about Jesus as the one in whom the fullness of the Godhead dwells. Number one, if this is true about Jesus, the number one I want to say to you that we can trust that the words of Jesus are the words that lead us into the very heart of life. The words of Jesus are not just poetic words kind of spoken and they're sort of nice and all of that, but then there are other words that are also... No, these words are the words that take us into the very heart of reality. And when we hang on the words of Jesus... We find ourselves being shunted right into life. Jesus says it so beautifully. He's talking to his disciples towards the end of his life. And he says this. This is John chapter 12. He says, I don't speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. You know what that means? That means that every word that has ever come out of the mouth of Jesus came straight from the very core of the Godhead. This is whatever Jesus says is the deep will of God for human life. Where he says to the Pharisees in John chapter 6, he says that the spirit gives life and the flesh counts for nothing. And the words that I've spoke to you, they are full of the spirit and they are full of... And you know it when you encounter the words of Jesus. That somehow they wash over you with spirit and they wash over you with life. And you realize that you can build a life for yourself inside the words of Jesus. I've had so many encounters But the words of Jesus over my years walking with him, I can remember some years ago, I was just in the middle of one of those stretches where you feel like you are doing everything wrong. Have you ever had one of those? And it was like a real stretch too. Not like a week or a month. It felt like I was like in a year, maybe a lifetime. Everybody's mad at me. I can't do anything right. Everything I do is just ridiculous and wrong. And I just had this, I just remember the weight on my shoulders Uh, You know, you're just so sick of yourself. And I had this practice at that time where I would do my devotions in the morning, but then at the end of the day, after dinner, I would go down into my little office and I would light a candle and sit at my desk and I would do another little evening devotion just to kind of settle my soul. And my devotions usually came out of the Book of Common Prayer, a wonderful ancient prayer resource. And I remember sitting down this one particular night feeling the weight of the world on my shoulders and feeling like I was failing everybody and failing myself and failing God and that I was just the worst human. And I sat down in the opening reading the words of Jesus. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. And have you ever had like a fight with God about what he's trying to say to you? Did I remember sitting there reading those words? Jesus said, you are the light of the world and going, you got the wrong guy. The light of the world? Do you know know what this last stretch has been like? Do you know who's mad at me? Do you know what I've done? Do you know this like cloud of antagonism that I have kicked up from all my stupid actions? Jesus, I'm going to, I know you're a smart guy, smart guy. But I'd like to go on record correcting you here. You say I'm the light of the world. I'm going to say that I'm the darkness of the world at this moment, okay? And maybe we'll get to the light, but I'm the darkness right now. And you are the light of the world. And I just remember fighting with the Lord. I am not the light of the world. You see all this stuff that I've done and the way that I've been behaving. I am the darkness of the world. You are the light of the world. I'm not. I'm like the crap of the world is what I am. The scum of the earth. I'll take that verse, you know. That's who I am right now. You are the light of the world. And I just remember like waves on a seashore. You are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. And that, oh, those words of Jesus, battering the resistance, battering the resistance, beating down all of my condemnation, beating down all of my shame, beating down all of my guilt. And all of a sudden, as I let those words like water, poof, poof, poof start penetrating my heart. And pretty soon the tears are rolling down the cheeks. Why? Because I realize that somehow it's just a grace. It's not anything that I, our status as the people of God isn't anything that we did. Jesus says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. So you're going to be the light of the world. If I call you the light of the world, you are the light of the world. And do you know what happened? Wouldn't you know it? I got up out of that place and my behavior started writing itself. Why? fundamental change of identity that happened because somehow the words of Jesus got into me. Are you encountering the words of Jesus? This is the whole point, by the way, of reading the Scripture. We don't read the Scripture to make sure that we've got all of our doctrinal ducks in a row. I mean, that is important. We say the creed. And we don't read the Scripture to try to gather more information about God Because if I just have a critical mass of information about God, then I'll be like, that's not why we do it. Do you know why we do it? Because Jesus is God in a body. And the words that he speaks are spirit and they are life. And somehow, when we hide them in our hearts, we find that they transform us and we live in a way that's more in accord with the will of God. We're more human because we've encountered the words of Jesus. And so if Jesus is God in a body, that means that we can trust his words to lead us into the heart of life. But it also means, number two, that we can trust that the words of Jesus will lead us into the very heart of Scripture. Have you ever been baffled by the Bible? It's okay to admit it in church. Have you ever read the Bible and you're like, Oh, heck no. You ever read the Bible and be like, that doesn't make any sense at all. You ever read the Bible and bed like, I think I'm just going to stick to the stuff in the New Testament, you know? And then you get to the New Testament, you go, well, this is kind of wonky too. It's a wild book. And the worst thing that can happen to us is that we read the words of Scripture, but we don't read them as having their primary referent in Jesus the Lord, And all of the most screwy ideas in the history of Christianity came because we stopped reading the Bible as though the Bible were bearing witness to Jesus. Jesus says to a group of people, the Pharisees, in John chapter 6, he says this, that you study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in these words, and the words alone, you have eternal life. But these are the very Scriptures that, what do they do? They testify about Jesus He says, and yet you refuse to come to me to have life. The Bible is about... Yeah, you got it. Good job. And not just in its whole, but in every little part. That somehow every little piece of it is a witness to him in some way. Which means that we cannot read the Bible at all. Unless we really read it trying to discern the person of Christ in it. And we won't read it right until we do just that. And we need Jesus to help us read the Bible in the right way. Which is why we get this moment at the end of the book of Luke. Jesus is with the disciples raised from the dead. And it says, then he opened their minds. Who opened their minds? So that what? So that they could read the Bible. We get into crazy, though, when we don't read the Bible as though it was about Jesus. And I'll never forget, I've just seen so much of this over the years. Your theology has got to be Jesus. Your way of reading the Bible has got to be Jesus. Your sense of how the world works has got to be Jesus. Because when God speaks, Jesus is what he says. And because when God takes a body, Jesus is what he looks like. And these words are bearing witness to Jesus. You've got to make it about Jesus. And I've seen so many crazy things over the years. The way that we talk about God and the way that we work out our theology, I remember getting home from church some years ago, and there was a new, Facebook, a new social media controversy raging. Every day there's some new controversy. Some famous pastor said something, and he was preaching. This famous pastor was. Preaching will get you in a lot of trouble, especially if you're an idiot. <laughs> Wasn't very nice, was it? We'll take communion in a second, and I'll get it all squared away. And he was preaching. You know, John says one of the things, one of the great things, we're going to talk about this next week. One of the great things that John says in his epistle is he says that God is love. And this preacher was on some rant. He said, you know, I just see people talking about God is love and God is love this and God is love that. And he goes, and I appreciate that. And that's in the Bible. He said, but you know, we really need a more balanced view of God. He said, because God is not just love, but the Bible also says that God is wrath, which is not correct. And... He said, you know, there's a lot of stuff in the Bible that talks about the wrath of God. And sometimes, you know, I think we just talk about love too much, but we got to like find a way to balance it out in some way. And then so that somebody on social media posted this clip and there's a lot of conversation about it. And some people taking one side and some another. And then somebody posted this clip of this other famous preacher, which that's like a word to the wise. You know, if you can avoid it, try not to be a famous preacher in life. It's just occupational hazards everywhere. And so a famous preacher. And this famous preacher was ranting the same thing about how God is love. But in the Old Testament, it talks about how God hates sinners. And so we need to really balance it all out. And I remember thinking, this is the most asinine theology I've ever heard in my life. As though God is just this kind of random collection of freestanding attributes Love and wrath, mercy and justice and all of that. And God's kind of in this sort of eternal tug of war inside himself. And sometimes he's very loving and he loves us and everything is wonderful. And other times he's just really mad at us. And he can't really make up his mind. I think I wouldn't tolerate that in any of my friends. (laughs) Much less in the God of the universe. Is God a coherent character at the core of his personality, or is he a multiple personality maniac? It matters. And if God is divided in his mind about what he thinks about us, then we cannot trust God. But fortunately, we have met God in the person of Jesus. The most famous scripture in all of the Bible, John 3.16, for God so that what? He gave His one and only Son that whoever should believe in Him shall not perish. But for God so, what did He love? Well, there you go. That's as wide as that gets. God has made up His mind about the world. And I'll affirm the wrath of God as the day is long, but I will not pit the wrath of God against the love of God. Because you know what I think the the wrath of God is? The wrath of God is what the love of God looks like when it sees that the beloved is in need of rescue. And so everything in God goes out of God's self to drive the demon of depravity out of us and to heal God's good world. Moreover, in Jesus, we see that the great wrath of God doesn't fall on human beings that God supposedly hates. Do you know where the wrath of God falls? It falls on God. And God, in the second person of the Trinity from the cross, cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And when Jesus, the Son, asks the Father to do something, that request is not denied. When the Son says to the Father, Forgive them, the Father raises Jesus from the dead and says, You better believe I will. Jesus is our theology. <laughs> That's how you read the Bible. When you're reading all the wonky stuff in the Old Testament that doesn't make sense to you, when you're reading about crazy stuff that happens, when you can't add it all up, do you know what you do? You say, Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And you discern Christ in all of those little bits and fragments of the Old Testament. And all of a sudden you'll start to see the hidden face of God. Augustine said, for now, treat the scripture of God as the face of God melt in its presence. That we read the Bible looking for the face of the Jesus in whom we have fallen in love with. And it transforms us. And so we can trust that the words of Jesus are the words of God. And we can trust that the words of Jesus will help us make sense of the scriptures. And number three, I'd say to you that we can trust that the actions of Jesus are in fact the actions of God towards us. And that those actions show us how God truly and forever feels about us. Do you know what I think? I think that most of us, I've talked to a lot of people over the years, and I think that most people on some level are wondering and they're worried about whether or not God is mad at them. Like Maybe God just doesn't like me. Maybe God is displeased with me. The stuff I've done, the things I've said, the people I've been involved with, maybe I'm just beyond the pale. And that's where you've got to look at the actions of God and Jesus because those actions tell you, How God acts towards you and how God forever feels about you. One of the great moments. Here's like a moment to hang your hat on whenever you're wondering how God feels to you, about you. Do you remember that moment with Jesus and Peter towards the end of the ministry of Jesus? All the disciples are together and Jesus is telling them he's about to go to the cross and that they're all going to abandon him. And do you remember what Peter says? Oh, Jesus, he says. No, 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 no. I mean, these guys. You know, maybe little John over there, you know, he'll kind of get timid at the end, you know, but not me. Pats his chest. You know, I'll never betray you. I'll never deny you. And you remember what Jesus says to Peter? Today, yes, tonight. Before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me. Not one time, but three times. By the way, in the Gospels, Jesus actually had gone on record as saying that if you deny me before human beings, what's going to happen? He gets denied before the Father in heaven. Before that night was over, Peter denied Jesus not one time, but three times. He was part of the reason why his friend was handed over to suffering and death. And that friend rose three days later. And when he's talking with the women at the empty tomb, do you remember what he says? Go back and tell my disciples and Peter to go to Galilee because that's where they're going to see me. And I got some words to say to Peter. And he sits with Peter And you know what he does with Peter? He gives him a meal. He reaffirms his love for him. And he calls him into the mission. And he says, hey, you remember that thing I said to you that you're Peter and on you, this rock? I'm going to build my church. Well, I ain't taking those words back. You got work to do, son. Peter did the worst thing that you can do. And who did he meet? God saying, welcome home, friend let's get busy. So tell me now, what's the thing that you did that you just think is so insurmountable? What's the thing that you're carrying around that you just feel like, oh, God could never forgive me of that. And I have this thing and that thing. Jesus says to Peter, welcome home. Don't you think he's saying it to you too? We hang our hat on the action of Jesus. Because the action of Jesus reveals to us the heart of God, and we can make a home there. Can you receive that this morning, church? Can we stand to our feet? It just strikes me when we come to the table here. The table tells this story. You want to know how God feels about you, what God thinks about you? Here it is right here. God gives himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ, crucified, died, and raised to life. And then he keeps giving himself to us in bread and cup. And we keep trying to push God away. God, you don't know what I've done. You don't know who I am. I don't really understand this. I don't understand that. And God keeps coming to us in Jesus saying, why don't you just eat this bread and take this cup and be mine? (laughs) That's what we do. We're coming home to God every time we come to the table. And so we remember before you, Lord Jesus, on the night that you were betrayed, after you had given thanks, you took the bread and you broke it and you gave it to your disciples. And you said, take this, all of you, and eat. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, drink from this, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the remission of sins. Do it whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And so, Lord Jesus, we lift up bread and cup before you. We ask that you would take these things in your hands this morning. Bless them. Break them. Fill them and us with your presence. That somehow bread and cup, the table of the Lord, would be a gate of heaven for us. That we find ourselves in the kingdom of God. Grant it, we pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Communion is up front here. We've got a couple pastors serving communion over here. It's going to be extra good, I think, over there. Wow, what a special morning. And Ken and Gail are also awesome and very pastoral in their way. So, they, Somebody get that pastor a nap. That's what you guys are saying. You exit down the center and then you're going to come forward. Servers will put the cracker in your hand. You'll dip it in the cup and take it as you head back to your seat. Brothers and sisters, I say to you, God loves you. And Jesus is for you. And these are the gifts of God given for the people of God. Come forward and receive communion. (laughs)